You're listening to TIP. Great people, great people who fit the culture, who love what they're doing, who want to make an impact, who care about the communities that we're impacting and who have integrity and honesty and hard work. I completely agree that the people are, are the most important. Hey guys, in this week's episode, I got to sit down with Miami developer Aussie Symbol and talk about the inspiration his mother provided him watching her lift a family's fortunes through real estate, what he learned from a 20000 per year job with mixed-use pioneer Howard Jacobs, how he broke into development in both New York and Miami, how the downturn of 2008 provided an opportunity that changed his life, what early retirement was like, and why he chose to return to the world of real estate development. As chairman of Symbol DLT Companies, Asi has over 30 years of experience in real estate, development, construction, finance, and law. He's a graduate of Vassar College and UCLA Law School. He's acquired, developed, and constructed billions in projects and is breaking ground on over $100 million every quarter this year, commercial and residential projects. Symbol's real estate portfolio also includes significant achievements, including taking a $70,000 investment and turning it into $55 million. Asi has significant food and beverage experience and has co-created and owned over half a dozen of the hottest restaurants and clubs in Miami. I really enjoyed this talk with Asi, not only because we got to talk about his journey as a real estate developer, but I also wanted to hear how he spent his time in early retirement and why he chose to come back to the world of real estate after achieving financial independence. There's a ton of good stuff in this one, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. And so, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Asi Symbol. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a Miami developer, Ozzy Symbol. Ozzy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start off, we were talking a little earlier before the show. You grew up in Israel and moved to New York at the age of three. I wanted to hear about moving to the US at, at a very young age. I don't know if you have memories of it, but in my research, I read that your mom is one of your biggest heroes. You're actually more proud of her, I read, than of your own accomplishments. Talk to me a little bit about her, what she did that was pretty impressive, and we'll get into that as you tell your story here. I appreciate that. Yeah, so at three, we moved to Brooklyn, to Coney Island, not the fancy part of Brooklyn. Brooklyn has become fancy. That fanciness still has bypassed Coney Island. So we moved into a housing, a public housing project that Donald Trump's father built. My dad actually still lives there. And I was just really impressed with my mom. She had a, a divorce. She divorced from my dad. It wasn't a, it wasn't a great marriage and she was kind of on her own. And for a while, couldn't really take me and my sister because she couldn't afford us. And she was on food stamps for a while. And so I just saw her step by step through sheer will sheer will, not education. She didn't, I don't believe she graduated high school, but sheer will figuring out as a bookkeeper in a tie factory, how to slowly invest in real estate. She had, she was renting, I think a one bedroom co-op in uh, a one bedroom apartment in Brooklyn that turned co-op. She borrowed money from friends and family to buy it. I think it must've been maybe $10,000 at the time. 
And then she flipped it within a year for more money than she made as a bookkeeper in a Thai factory and then said, well, let me do more of this. And she's progressed to progress with other deals and she eventually made real money. That's one of the reasons I'm very proud of her, in addition to the sheer will and determination of getting us out of there. I love those stories. Does, did she continue to invest in real estate? Yeah, she did. I mean, so she took proceeds from that co-op flip and I think maybe did an eight unit deal and then a bigger deal. And eventually her biggest deal, I think at the age of 50, was a 64 unit deal in Crown Heights which is now, I understand, has become actually a a quasi-hipper area. It's a religious Jewish area that's also quasi-hip. And now she made her first million with that deal. That's awesome. Is she still living? She is. She's living. She's, I actually convinced her to move to Miami because I figured Miami's the better place to live after a lifetime in Brooklyn. I love New York, but it was a little rough living out in Coney Islands. And you know, I saw better opportunities for us as a family and also for real estate to come to South Florida because everything in New York was so expensive. It's, you know, for, for anything, if you don't have a hundred million dollars or so, you can't really interact or transact on any meaningful level in New York City. So I figured for a lot less money, let's come down to Miami. At that point, I was in real estate. I got my mom to move here about 20 plus years ago. Then my sister moved here. And then a few years later, I moved here. So my mom lives about 40 blocks away from me. That's awesome. My dad also is kind of similar to your mom. He's been a huge influence on me. Same kind of story made on his first real estate deal, made more than he had been making as a sales guy, you know, in his first deal and the light bulb went off and started building homes. Do you still talk with your mom or do you talk with your mom? Do you discuss business with her? Do you run ideas by her? Do you talk shop with her? Yeah. So until recently, she was very involved in real estate. And I was very involved in her business because I mean, one of the reasons I became a lawyer is because, well, first I have a Jewish mother and my only option was medicine or law. And since I hate blood, it had to be law. And second, I saw her at a very young age making these handshake deals that unfortunately ended up in litigation for her. And I saw those conversations with lawyers freaking her out. And I said to myself, you know, I'm, I never want to grow up in business or in life, freaking out when a lawyer calls me. And so that's been helpful. I definitely don't freak out around lawyers. And so I was very involved with her business since I was 15, sort of protecting her, dealing with litigation, dealing with other matters, and always helping her because I had the English language. She didn't speak English as well. So we've always talked business and I've always you know, been involved in her business. And now she's getting older and now I things are different. That's great, though, to be able to have her as a resource and motivation, just the example that she set for you. I wanted to talk, you mentioned law school. You ended up going to law school at UCLA. I think you went to undergrad at Vassar. I love Vassar. And Vassar saved me. Vassar was a savior. All kidding aside, aside from the fact that it was an all-women's college or, you know, historically, when I got there, they admitted men, uh, but it was still mostly women. And it, Vassar really saved me. You know, all of a sudden I, I left from the urban jungle of Brooklyn where the playgrounds were kind of like ghetto to a thousand rolling acres of greenery in an ivory setting. It was unbelievable. Vassar was amazing. So great experience there. You ended up going to UCLA. Why did you decide to pursue law school rather than go into development? I read that you dreamt of building skyscrapers. 
growing up in New York. I think you were influenced, obviously, by your mom. Why not go directly into development rather than pursue law school and the costs and time of that? I didn't really know what development was until I went to law school. And the reason I went to UCLA as opposed to any other school was I knew I didn't want to be an attorney and I knew I didn't want to be saddled with a quarter of a billion dollar bill. So I went to the best public, least expensive school I could get into. And that was UCLA, which was a great experience. And it was there, you know, I always thought I'd buy and sell real estate because that's how I saw my mom getting her and us off of food stamps. But when I went to UCLA, I was introduced by real estate finance law professor to a developer, Howard Jacobs. And Howard said, you can always buy and sell, but if you build and develop, you'll have a lot more fun and make a lot more money. And I didn't know what development was. He hired me to run around his construction site and it was just so much fun. I loved it. I ate it all up. I love it. Fast forward, what is it, 30 years? Love it as much, if not more. Was that a job that you took with Howard during law school or were you already, had you already finished law school? It was during law school. And I remember he actually introduced me to spreadsheets and Excel. I didn't even know what Excel was, a spreadsheet running number. I had no idea what that was. Underwriting deals. I remember being there late at night, just trying to figure it all out. So it was during law school that I worked for him. And then when I graduated, I ended up working for him sort of circuitously because he wasn't offering me much money, a fraction of what the UCLA law grads were getting paid. And I said, hey, Howard, how could you offer me so little? He's like, well, you're, you don't know anything about development. I'm like, but everyone's getting offered so much money out of the law school. He's like, but they're working as a lawyer. So I ended up working as a lawyer for like a nine-month stint at, I think it was uh, Ernst & Young as a tax attorney, working in a cubicle. So miserable. My entire time was focused on how to avoid work. It was awful. And then after nine months of this, I called Howard back and I said, Howard, do you remember me? And he's like, yeah, I see. I'm like, if it's still available, I'd love to take that low offer. And thankfully he said yes. And I worked for him and it was amazing. And I think it was about 20,000 that he was offering you. Yes. I mean, not enough to pay my credit card bills. I mean, it was a rough time. It It was a rough time for a long time. Talk to us about some of the lessons, though, that you learned from him working underneath him. He taught me a lot of great stuff. So he is micro. He's very detailed oriented. Like me now, a licensed attorney, a licensed general contractor. That's where I got the idea. And he's one of those guys who's a very hands-on developer and contractor. So what he taught me is pay attention to the details. Do not mess around. Like he could quote you, you know, the price of lumber. He could get into the minutia. That's what I learned from Howard. That also suits my personality because I'm also detail-oriented. And then there are other mentors along the way who taught me bigger picture, less detail. So I've borrowed from each mentor. Well, let's get into that. I think in 1999, you moved to New York with no job. I think I still dreamt of building skyscrapers. And you were unemployed for about a year. And then you met a real estate attorney, Noel Dennis. But I believe you were mostly doing litigation. Talk to us about how you broke into doing development in New York. I met Noel because I was in the worst place I could possibly be. Here I was clawing to get out of Brooklyn. Finally, you know, got to Vassar. Finally got to L.A. And then coming back to build skyscrapers, but I, but I had no money, no contacts, and I had to live with my mom because I was broke. And I'm like, here I am, 30 years old. No one would hire me. And I, Noel was, I think, an uncle or a cousin of a good friend, and I just needed a job. 
litigation was actually, I never thought I'd see the inside of a courtroom or want to, but it was a lot more fun than I expected. And I, I actually became a lawyer. I became a real estate lawyer for the very first time. You liked the litigation, but you still want to do development. What after that job with Noel did you do to start getting your feet on the ground of learning the development business? I kept on looking for development positions. I reached out to developers. I kept on looking for positions, interviewed a bunch of places. Everyone said no. And it was a hiring boom. Everyone was hired. You could just have heartbeat and you were hired. Somehow, no one hired me for years. And then finally, a friend mentioned that there was a developer looking for a young guy to come on board. I answered the ad in a classified ad, met with the guy, had a two-hour interview. He was this bearded guy, Orthodox Jew. And after two hours, he said, you're hired. And I asked for what? And he said, for whatever I tell you to do. That guy's name is Shia Boimelgreen. And he made a partnership with a company that I never heard of before called Africa Israel. So I called my friends in Israel and asked, hey, have you heard of this company? And they said, yes, that's actually the largest developer in Israel. And this guy, religious Jew out of Brooklyn, JV'd with them. And he hired me, I guess, because I was the educated guy. I think I was the first guy in his company to graduate high school. Everyone else was you know, family, yeshiva guys. And the opportunity I got was insane because he gave me whatever I could take and I took it all. And after three years with Shia Bumal Green, I developed about $700 million in New York City in development, brought Philippe Stark to do his first project in New York City. He's a big designer, did the largest non-union job in Manhattan, which was so intense. You know, going to a, like Manhattan is all unions, going to the, like a huge site with protests outside, you know, protesting that it's not a union job. That's a memory I will never forget. But the opportunity was phenomenal. And after three years with Shia Bomagreen, who taught me macro, big picture, contrast that to Howard, to your point, Howard was micro, super detailed. Shia was more big picture. And they both had different ways of approaching business. After that experience with Shia in Manhattan, I decided, okay, it's time to do this on my own. And I, I moved to Miami. So what were some of those early deals like? How did you have any credibility as a, as a young guy with no real experience? Was it because of the, his name? Well, yeah, I mean, because my experience in, in New York City was substantial. My mom had a business partner at the time in Miami who, you know, was very well, no, very social. And I'm, I'm not particularly social. And he knew, you know, he knew a lot of people and he was looking to become a developer and he knew a lot of people. He knew a lot of people with money. He found the guy with money. He wanted to be a developer himself. And he asked me to join as a, as a partner, as a minority partner. And it was based on that agreement that I moved to Miami to develop this real estate that my partner at the time had acquired. And that's what brought me to Miami. And I just figured it out as I, I went along, although eventually that, that partnership dissolved. So that was 2004, I believe, is when you went to Miami, correct? Yes, correct. What was that like entering a brand new market? First of all, Miami's paradise. I mean, Miami's unbelievable. It's paradise. I mean, it's, it's the perfect weather, great people. Everyone's seemingly having fun. And for me as a developer, I thought I'd have a competitive edge here because I was trained as an attorney, trained by a micro guy with a lot of detail. Went to New York City, did $700 million deals, you know, with a macro guy who partnered up with a serious company. I figured Miami at the time was the Wild West. There weren't really professional developers. There weren't many of them. 
There were a lot of people with money who consequently lost the money in development, but there weren't like many professional developers. And my theory was that for a little bit of money, I or less money than New York, certainly, I could come to Miami and have a competitive edge. That's the reason I, I, I came here. And eventually it took time because no one knew me. I had no contacts. I had no money. But eventually, it took too long in my opinion, but eventually that theory played out. What was your first deal? Tell us about that in Miami. My first deal was, I think, when I was 40, when I was about to basically quit the business. I was thinking to myself, here I am at 40. I've got $70,000 in my bank account. It's going nowhere. I just dissolved this partnership. We're in the Great Recession. The future looks bleak. A lot of it had to do with luck. I remember getting a call. A guy turned me on to this deal that I actually had under contract a couple of years prior, but that came back to the market. And I knew the deal really well, like because I had underwritten it, I had researched it, I met with the lenders. It was this deal. It was uh, across the street from where my office was. A guy was building a big project, but he stopped. He bought the site for $13 million. There was an $11 million note on it. And I had the opportunity, because I knew the site, to buy the note for $2 million. And that was my first deal. And I did whatever it took to get that deal. I got the deal because in my mind, this was my last chance. If I wasn't going to do this deal, I wasn't going to be in development. I was going to find another business. And lucky for me, I took a lot of risks. But eventually, it worked out really well. I bought the note, foreclosed on it. I was trying to build a building, but because, again, who are you? You know, you have no money. No one would lend me money. So I couldn't get financing. But then that $2 million note acquisition, and then I had to put in another million, so $3 million in, all of a sudden, and this was in the Miami Design District in a site right across the street from where my office was. So I, I tracked the construction. The biggest guy in the design district came up to me and offered me $11 million for that site. Couldn't build it. I didn't execute on that plan, but the 3 million turned into 11 in 24 months. Two years. Wow, that's awesome. And so you bought the note in 2008? I want to say in 2009, December 27th, 2009, the closing days of 2009. And was it a completed project or not at all? It, it was half done. What was the status of it? The foundation was built. Columns were above grade. And it was a beautifully designed project, but I had a different design for it and a different vision. And I got a new project entitled and then tried to figure out, well, how do you build this building? And that's where, you know, the story of my life, financing is always challenging. And you got to hear like a thousand no's, got to hear a thousand no's, get used to it. A thousand no's before you hear that. Yes. I'm still not used to it, but I'm, I'm trying to get used to it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. 
Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I like to ask older guys that did live through the 2008 great financial crisis. Older guys, not that you're that old. Older. You're not, not. I'm an older guy now. <laughs> I used to be the younger guy, but well, I get it. We've got a lot of listeners that have not lived through a downturn. So you actually have lived through it. And I like to discuss it with other people who, you know, who you experienced it firsthand. What kind of advice would you have for a younger investor that's never experienced a downturn? What should they be doing now if we're and we'll talk about this. I kind of wanted to hear your kind of market predictions for the coming years. But let's say there is a, a downturn, I don't know, similar to 2008, if that's going to happen or not. But what kind of advice would you tell a younger person to get ready for how to handle it? Well, first of all, find the opportunity. Track that opportunity, track that deal. If you believe there's a downturn, track that deal and confirm the downturn meaning you'll see the price go down, right? That's how you know there's a downturn. That's how you know there's an opportunity. Track that deal, get as much market intel as you can and hustle. Hustle, hustle, hustle. And don't let anything get in your way. Don't let anything stop you. Would you say it's actually a good thing to maybe look forward to a downturn? Yeah, I think there are opportunities. What I've learned now, I mean, I used to say, listen, the secret to real estate is buy low, sell high. Very simple. And it's easy to do that in a downturn because you're buying low. So that was my go-to. To your point, my first deal, well, if the guy before me bought it for 13 and he's got a note at 11, how could I go wrong buying the note at two? 
And I did make money, right? I turned three to 11 in 24 months. And that was my first big money. As I've evolved, first of all, always buy low, sell high. But that evolves into not just the purchase price, but also creating value. So when I look back, the most money that I've made to date, for example, is this Oasis Point project that we just completed, 301 units, $140 million deal. And the reason we did well on that deal is because we executed. So it wasn't just buying low and sell high. It was you buy it right. We bought it very well. We rezoned it. We created value in the rezoning, right? So we eyed an area that no one else was pursuing. We rezoned it from industrial to residential, buy low and create value. After that rezoning, we created amazing value, right? We turned probably a $4.7 million acquisition to at least $9 million. Big numbers. But by executing, you know, we ended up, you know, building the 301 units by executing we ended up making 60 or $70 million on top of that. Big difference between four and five million and 60 or 70. There are many different ways of buying low and selling high. What was that rezoning process like? How long did that take? Does your law background help you with that? Yeah, absolutely. Law definitely helps. Rezoning, a lot of it is politics. A lot of it is administration. And I like that process and I think I'm pretty good at it. I mean, we have a 100% success rate at entitlement, at rezoning. And that's a lot of what we do. Not all developers take on that risk. You'll hear the phrase entitlement risk. And a lot of people are not interested in that. But I think we do it well because first, I mean, I do like people. I do like talking to the politicians. I like to understand what the city needs. And plus, we deliver a product that's beautiful, right? I I don't want to just build for the sake of building, right? I don't want to be embarrassed by what what I build. I want to be proud. And for us, it's like buildings that are beautiful, that are well-designed, that has Aboriginal art and wellness and sustainability and technology, that it makes a positive impact on neighborhoods. You start seeing the neighborhoods change as a result of what we've built in those areas. So when you communicate that to the politicians and the community, at least the result for us has been very positive. And I've got to think that once you've had one successful project, it becomes much easier to do the second and the third ones. Yeah, it is now. Well, listen, I'll tell you for the Oasis Point project that we took about two, three years ago. I mean, that was a hard project to lift because it was in the middle of COVID, right? Again, no one's lending you money, right? The story of my life, you know, I've, I've heard this forever. In the design district, this project that I bought for two million added a th- another million. Couldn't convince anyone except for three people that I was right. But thank God those guys believed in me and it turned out to be a wild success. And that's been the story over and over again, a thousand no's. So back to a fast forward 10 years later, you're in COVID and it's like, you know, who are you? What have you done? Same story. And as long as you grow, I think you're going to keep hearing. I'm going to keep hearing that. To your point, yeah, it's better now. Many more people know who I am. I'm no longer chasing lenders. Thankfully, lenders are chasing us at this point, which is an amazing turnaround from three years ago. But we're also constantly expanding. I'm very, to your point, the older guy, I'm running out of time. Hey, we're all running out of time. And I'm very conscious of that. And I have a lot of plans and a lot of visions for our company, for our team. I'm not looking to be static and standing still. I'm looking to grow constantly. And when you grow constantly, you're always going to hear, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. Of course not. I'm growing. I'm going to hear that for the rest of my life. And if I don't, then that's a problem. I want to go into your company, Symbol DLT. What would you say makes your company stand out? What's its unique competitive edge compared to some other developers in town? 
couple of things. First, we build our own projects. We take on the construction risk. A lot of things, something that most developers won't do, right? Developers in many ways consider construction a risk, and it is. It's a huge risk. We believe we mitigate the risk by actually being the builder, controlling the risk, as opposed to giving it to a third party who, because of the way the contracts are set up, are in an adversarial position to the owner and the developer. So here's a guy who controls 65, 70% of your costs that you're in an adversarial relationship with. That to me is insane. We took on that risk. I think that makes us very different than most developers around, particularly at this deal size. You know, now our deal size is in the hundred to two hundred million dollar range. And our goal is to execute on a deal like that every quarter, every quarter break around on a hundred to two hundred million dollar project. The other thing that makes us different is we care. You know, we really care about these projects. We care about the communities. We care about the people living in the community. That goes back to design and art and all the things that give a community life and soul. And then when the community is done, we still care. We own it. We manage it. We operate it. And I go into, you know, tenant events, social events, and my business partner as well to make sure that everyone's happy living there. And if they're not, I want to know why. And we want to correct that. I'm a big fan of the book, Good to Great by Jim Collins. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but one of the ideas of it is getting the right people on the bus and then determining where to drive the bus. How have you gone about getting the right people on the Symbol DLT bus? For most of my life and career, I've sort of been a one-man show or maybe a few others joined me. I had partners who weren't sort of equal in many ways. And I think What makes us different right now and what attracts like the high quality people you just mentioned is I have a friendship with a guy for about 15 years. And I always said that if I ever did something really big in in construction, not just in making money in real estate the way I had, buy low, sell high, but actually build and execute something sophisticated and significant, I'd bring him on board. His name is Hector Torres. He's basically my brother, smartest construction guy in a room. And we complement each other in different ways. I like big picture vision, design. That's kind of where I focus strategy. Where's the company going? He comes in into the nitty gritty of construction, development, procedures, processes, and culture. And he also convinced me, hey, Asi, don't do this on your own. We love to read Napoleon Hill, right? Napoleon Hill talks about the mastermind. And prior to reading that, I'm like, what do I need a partner for? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Why do I need a company? Why do I need to write to cut all these checks? Back when I was poor and people were cutting me checks, I'm like, I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy who write, cuts the checks. Then I got a taste of that. I'm like, I don't want to cut any checks anymore. So I let everyone go. But after talking with Hector and reading Napoleon Hill and getting the concept of the mastermind, it was clear. You got to bring great people together. I brought Hector into the Oasis Point project, and together we've been creating this amazing company that over time, we're probably three years into this merger of our two companies, or two years in. You know, when we started, it was me, him, and assistant. Now we're about 33, 34 people, and this by the end of this year, we'll be 60. And the talent that we're now drawing is so significant. Great people, great people who fit the culture, who love what they're doing, who want to make an impact, who care about the communities that we're impacting, and who have integrity and honesty and hard work. I completely agree that the people are are the most important. I'm glad you mentioned Napoleon Hill. I kind of wanted to get into books also. Do you have any other Think and Grow Rich, for those that don't know, is the, the book that you're referencing? 
But do you have any other books that you recommend? Yes. I think it's a balance, right? I mean, now we're talking about real estate, we're talking about development, we're talking to business, but there are other things in life other than that. There's love, there's health, there's a lot of stuff. Napoleon Hill, I love. He's a core book for me. I reread his book every month, Think and Grow Rich and other books, but also Deepak Chopra, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. There's a meditative practice that I think is very important. Also, my business partner thinks it's important to be spiritual, right? I I think it's very important to be complete, make sure you have love in your life. So there are books that I read that really helped me get there successfully, remarkably. Those are some of the books that I read. We're big fans at the Investors Podcast of Ray Dalio, who, who wrote a book called Principles, and he's a big meditator. Is that something you practice every day or regularly? I know when I'm out of balance. I know those days. And those are the days, hey, Asi, you got to chill. You got to go back to the meditative practice. Ideally, it should be three or four days a week. When it's under that, things go wrong. I stress out. I'm off kilter. And so I try to bring myself back. Like this morning I did, I skipped my workout. You know, I love working out. That's the other meditative practice, but I was working out too much. So I decided today I'm not doing it. Went to the beach, spent 30 minutes. That's how I started my day. And honestly, I need to, I'd like to grow to doing more and more meditative practices. There's no question that it makes an impact. There is no question scientifically or otherwise. I'm reading a book right now called The Awakened Brain, which goes into some of the benefits of meditation and spiritual practices in general. And they've done CAT scans of MRIs. I'm not sure exactly of brains of meditators and non-meditators. And there's a vast difference. It's pretty wild. No question. And it also helps with, I know a lot of people suffer from anxiety and I recommend to them. I said, you need to have a meditative practice because otherwise you get to be where I was at the age of 42, where I was working so hard. I didn't have that practice. And then I kind of fell apart. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. It's too much stress. And then I took a five-year break with the encouragement of another mentor of mine, Joshua Rosenthal, actually, who ran and founded the largest school of nutrition in the world. And I remember- Oh, that's crazy. I know Joshua. Do you really? Yeah. Uh, What is that? What's it called? The company he founded? Institution of Integrative Nutrition. Joshua was my third investor. So when I had to close on this deal in the Miami Design District, I had three weeks. I never raised money before in my life. I had a few law school buddies who put up money. That was a game changer. But then I was short substantial amount of money. And I was introduced to him through a mutual friend. And within a week, he's like, Asi, I like you. I believe in you. Wired me the money. No agreement, no document signed, nothing. He really changed my life. And then we came very close for a long period of time. And I remember walking down the beach, I'll never forget this, telling Joshua, Joshua, this is how much money we're going to make on this deal. And he responded to me and said, Asi, I'm less concerned about how much money we're going to make on this deal and more concerned about you opening up your heart. And which really just set me back. I'm like, who says that? Who says that? So he encouraged me to actually take time off. And I did for five years. And he encouraged me to get more into a spiritual practice, which I did. So that was super, super helpful. It met the love of my life, had a family, it was like, traveled the world. It was phenomenal. But I was off kilter in the other way. You know, before I was working too hard and now I was meditating too hard. It was off balance again. So I decided after the birth of my daughter that the best approach is to bring the two together, be out there, create, be in business, and also live this semi-retired life, but work at 110% as well and leave an impact. And that's what I eventually did. 
I had the same experience. It's really hard to figure out how to balance like the material and the spiritual. And I've had periods like that, same as you, where I took time off really to focus on that aspect of life, this meditation and the spiritual aspect of things. It's a crucial skill to be able to bring that together, to bring real estate in with the spiritual. And it's, I think, really rare, honestly. Like you said, it's very easy to get lopsided one way or the other. Yes, correct. And you want people around you with the same expression, right? So Hector is big on spiritual practice. People that we bring to us, it's not just, okay, you can execute. You know, it's not just, hey, you have money. It's, are we aligned? Are we aligned in our philosophy of life and our, we say the business of life and the life of business? Are we all aligned that way? Because it's not just, it's multidimensional. You got you to connect on many levels and for ha- you know to have a long run, to create the company that we're looking to create, which is a very, very significant company. You need to be aligned. Do you talk with your employees about spiritual practices? I mean, I know in real estate in general, it's something I just don't discuss. It's a part of my life, but I don't discuss it. Is it something that you try to bring to the company? So it's funny. Hector and I just talked about, we do, but we trick them. We don't tell them what we're talking. We're not telling them that it's a spiritual practice conversation. We have our Monday morning meetings where we all collaborate. We're very big on collaboration. But at the end of the meeting, Hector has a presentation that really is about spiritual practice, but he brings it into the context of work and he calls it self-development. But he laughs. He's like, it's really, it's spiritual practice but we translate it into business so that people don't freak out. I think it's super powerful if you can bring it to the business world. I, I think Ray Dalio has, and he's created at Bridgewater, an amazing company. Sounds like you're trying to do the same at Symbol DLT. We agree. We agree. I'm a big fan of Sam Zell, and he, he talks a lot about zigging when others are zagging. I wanted to get into some of your thoughts on some trends or some market niches that you think it would be smart to focus on and then others that you think you should completely avoid? Listen, we're zaggers. <laughs> we're zaggers, right? All of our deals were that way. In the midst of the great financial crisis, we took on a real estate deal that phenomenally successful. We're developers who build our own stuff. Developers don't touch that. You're taking on too much risk. During COVID, everyone stopped. No one was building. We said, no, now this is the opportunity to build. Where are things headed? I don't know. I'll have philosophies and I'll have predictions, but they're usually wrong. And luckily for me, they're wrong in our favor in a big, big way. I'll share. I think we're heading into a rough time. I think that's kind of obvious, but let's see in a year or so how that translates. We may or may not see buying opportunities. Either way, we're geared up for tremendous buying opportunities where we want to take down 10 deals by the end of the year. We believe there will be buying opportunities, although I believe there were buying opportunities in COVID and I was wrong, but we're going to prepare. No harm, no foul. We're going to prepare for that. I think interest rates are decimating this industry, making it very, very difficult. Housing prices are going down. Construction prices have gone up materially. So it's very, very tough to build a project and make it work. Another reason why we like to control the hard cost by being the general contractor And it's going to be choppy waters. The next 12 to 18 months, I think, are going to be very, very choppy. But the way we're preparing for it is all chips on red, all chips on red. And that's how historically, well, in the last couple of years, we've kind of done it. Actually, historically, I've been very conservative, but now I'm I'm being very aggressive on our our dues. 
Are you stockpiling cash right now? You mentioned that you're trying to do about $100 million worth of projects every quarter, I believe. Or do you have lines of credit? Do you have relationships with banks? Yes. We're refinancing a project right now, hoping to take out close to $100 million out of that deal. We're raising an equity fund and we're working on credit line. We're doing The idea is to sit on cash right now, to get as much liquidity as possible. Also, we have a $2 billion pipeline that we need to prepare for. Right. It's, it's hard to execute on two billion if you're not sitting on a ton of cash. We're organizing and mobilizing for exactly that. You mentioned COVID. I'm just curious what some of the biggest challenges are right now in getting a hundred million dollars worth of projects completed. Oh my God. <laughs> so many. Luckily, we're no longer hearing who are you. That's a good thing. That's amazing. That's a real turnaround. That's amazing, amazing stuff. But the challenge is, is, you know, specifically in our business, leverage. We like to lever high because that gives the equity check that's required is a lot lower. And if we execute correctly, the multiple on that money is incredible. I mean, we've, we've been, been able to return to our investors every year for the last 13 years, 95% cash on cash, major, major returns, like a 4.7x on a five-year hold, right? I don't know anyone who's done that. We've taken risks. We've become, we're aggressive in our deals, but we got we to gotta mitigate the risk every day. Every day, there's a major issue that we have to solve for. So right now, construction escalation, lower leverage, higher interest rates. And are we going into a recession? Are we not going into a recession? Are the rents going to go up? Are they not going to go up? But listen, luckily, we're in South Florida. Anyone with half a head wants to move here. I'm surprised you're not here, Patrick. And you're seeing that. People are coming from New York. I mean, you are really seeing it. I think we're in a good spot. We just need to solve for these major issues that arise because we're in a complicated business and a complicated economy. We like to say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. 
Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I wanted to talk a little bit. What's an average day like for you right now? Or is there no such thing? It's very busy. I mean, it's, it's very intense. You know, it's very intense. There's a lot of disciplines that are involved. You know, an average day deals with politicians, with lawyers, with bankers, with lenders, with investors, having interviews, you know, being on panels, which I'm not a natural at that. I'm antisocial, not social. So that, that takes a heavy toll construction, going on job sites. And God, I, I wish I could go on job sites more. Now I'm limiting it to once a week because I don't add the same value that let's say Hector or COO who ran a major construction company adds to a job site, but I love it. It energizes me. And I got to do right now what's best for the company, which is financing, which is equity raise, which is strategy, which is growth, strategic vision, strategic direction, design, branding, marketing, that's a typical day and it's just intense. And it's great because um, I'm running out of time. You're very aware of the uh, passage of time. There's a practice that I've mentioned before on previous episode. It's called Memento Mori. It's a stoic practice. And it basically, it means remember your death. So basically, it's a meditation on you're going to die and how are you going to spend today? That's correct. 100%. That completely motivates me. And it's also a little different now, now that I have a family, I want to make an impact. I want to be more careful on how I want to spend my time. I want to achieve things at the highest level in all aspects of my life, not just business. Would you say it's the money that motivates you to continue to grind right now or is it something else? Initially it was the money, right? Because when you don't have money, I'm like, how come everyone else does? You know, how come I can't do things that everyone else did? You know, when I made that first hit, you know, at the age of 42, turning three to 11, I took the money and traveled the world, you know, because I've never really traveled like that. At this stage, it's more of an impact. And yes, you know, material success or you measure by success in many ways. One of them is a metric of, well, how much, how much money? The other is what's the impact you've made? The other is how much love do you have in your life? How's your health? You know, how's your mental state? 
at work, you know, it's also very exciting because we're creating this company, you know, and I'm a guy who never thought I'd create a company. You know, I thought I'd just figure it out on my own and be like my mom. She was a solo person her whole life. Howard, he had three or four people. I didn't think that I would create this company. And I think we're we're on a, on a trajectory of creating a, a substantial multi-billion dollar company with hundreds of employees. So nothing I ever thought I would want or that would be exciting, but it's really, really exciting. You know, just coming in with like-minded people, making an impact, having a multidisciplinary day, loving what I do, loving my business partner. That's what motivates me. You had mentioned the mastermind group. And is that something that you talk with Hector, your business partner? Do you guys talk strategy often about where you want to take the company 5, 10, 15 years from now? Yeah, constantly. Listen, I told him I'm like, I'm 54, he's 64. In five years, we're on the verge of being in our 60s and 70s, which is freaking insane. I don't know how it happened, but this is where we are. I think at that point, what I'd like to see for our companies have the new crop, all these guys that we're training, take over. Take over. And if we bring the company to a five to $10 billion level, I want to see them bring it to a $100 billion level or get to a 15x kind of scenario. That's our vision. We're very conscious of it. And, and we're very supportive of our key talent who are very young and relatively inexperienced, but are doing a terrific job. There was another article that I read as I was doing my research. It, they asked you what one of your favorite life lessons quote was. And you said, burn your bridges. And I wanted to talk about that. That's kind of unconventional. It's, you know, the conventional wisdom is to never burn your bridges. What did you mean by that? I meant it when I said it, but I meant it differently. When you go to an island, you usually go over a bridge. And the idea that I had in this partnership and Hector has it as well, burn that bridge. So you're on this island and there's no way off this island other than succeeding. When I reread that interview, I'm like, wait a second, but it has a different connotation, meaning burn your bridge burn your relationships. That's not what I intended. So probably a better description or better uh, phrase would have been burn your boats. You bring your boat to the island and you burn that boat. There's no way off that island. Now you're committed to one another. You're committed to succeed. I read passages of in war. I don't know if it was Napoleon or I, I don't know who that was. You know, they were outnumbered and then they just burn their boats because they realized that's the only way that they're going to win. They can't get off the island any other way. That's what I mean. I think some of the uh, Spanish conquistadors did that too. And then when they sailed to the new world, they burned the ships and it's like, we're going forward. There's no returning. And that's when Napoleon Hills talks about, right? He talks about that. He said, be committed, be committed a hundred percent, be focused, don't mess around. And we have clarity of vision on that point. I wanted to talk to you about, do you have any real estate or entrepreneurial heroes, how they've impacted your life and just some of the lessons that you've taken from them that you try to implement into your own company? Yes. I mean, so my mom is a hero. I saw her be very scrappy, just lift herself up by sheer will. Howard Jacobs, super smart guy, super smart guy and micro. So he gets into the detail and he's very skilled. He's very, very sharp and intelligent and also academically intelligent. Shia Boimelgreen, I'll never forget this. You know, Shia actually expanded... He became, I think, a multi-billion dollar developer at a certain point. And it wasn't on detail and it wasn't on focusing on the minutia. And he used to tell, it was more about big picture. And he used to tell me, Asi, explain it to me like a farmer. If I can't understand what you're saying as a farmer, it's a deal I don't want to do. A different perspective completely. 
And I incorporated that into my life. Big picture, big vision, the micro with Howard, being a lawyer, being a, a licensed general contractor, the sheer will of my mother. And then Joshua Rosenthal, who was about a spiritual practice. Who are you as a human being? Where is your heart? How do you transact with the people around you? Are you true to yourself? Do you have integrity? So those are the people who've guided me along. You had mentioned the Napoleon Hill idea of definiteness of purpose and the importance of vision. And you seem to be able to develop that throughout your life. Maybe there were some periods where it was, I don't know, a little uncertain, but how do you recommend younger people find that vision in their own life? Oh, easy. Fail. Just fail. Just keep failing the way I did. You know, you fail and learn from that failure. Learn from it, right? You're not going to know everything at any given time, but be out there, go at 110% in any endeavor that you undertake. If you fail, that's okay. Learn from it. As Napoleon Hill calls it, it's a temporary defeat. It's not really a failure. It's a temporary defeat. Learn the lessons from that temporary defeat. Be cognizant of the opportunities that get presented. You know, at the right time of my life, I decided I'm coming out of retirement. I'm executing. I want to build these incredible projects. I want to take my life to another level. And I learned so many things in my failures that allowed me to say, Hector, come on board. These are the projects we're doing. We're going to do it together, not by myself. Masterminds. And that's how you succeed. I wanted to talk about your first fund. That was 2008. You said it was, we discussed it was a $3 million deal that's now worth about $180 million. And you've got plans to grow it, I believe, to like $700 million by 2026. Talk to us about how you get those kinds of returns. I'm not good at math. You threw out some numbers, but that's a huge rate of return that you're compounding at. Yeah, that is a huge rate. A lot of it is just just know your stuff. When you don't know your stuff, learn from the failures. I mean, it's very easy. I knew this area in Miami that I thought it was going to boom. And very few others saw what I saw, but that's the zig, right? Or the zag. Or So you have to see things that others don't see. And so I was very aggressive on that deal. I bought it for three, sold it for 11. My guys were like, hey, what a job. Turned three into 11 in 24 months. Let's keep it rolling. We bought another deal out of bankruptcy for about 11, 11, five, roughly. Today, it's worth 110 million. We took money from that deal. We put it into this project at Oasis Point that generated 60 or $7 million in profits. And we also invested in another project that we're doing. And when you put that all together, you get to your 180. But that's before I even built the trophy project that I've been working on for 12 years in downtown Fort Lauderdale. The challenge there is when I bought that for 11, my partners were like, hey, try to flip it. Look at how much money we made flipping in the design district. And I said, okay, I'll try because you know I had great mentors and, and it didn't pan out for whatever reason. But then I said, you know what? Again, it's not just the money. I really, I, I, we bought this site because we're going to make an impact. I saw six acres on the water in a mature urban core. Where else can you make an impact? And then this project ended up becoming a billion-dollar project. And, then I, and I was semi-retired at that point. And I said to myself, well, how am I and my assistant going to build this billion-dollar project? I mean, that's, it sounds ludicrous. That's when I saw the, you know, I decided to come out of retirement. I brought Hector in. We started on Oasis Point just to get our feet wet, just to start a smaller project. Eventually, a lender gave us the money. 
We built it as the general contractor, wildly successful, started creating a team. That was the whole point. Get your feet wet, create the team because the vision and the goal is that billion dollar trophy that you're going to develop with no other new partners, by the way, except for my few partners who invested $3 million. With $3 million, our intent is to execute on a billion, no new partners. Then we decided, okay, there's, you know, we have this great team and the Fort Lauderdale deal is not yet ready to get built. I don't want to lose this team. We're creating a serious company here. We found another deal you know, to start building. And that's how our 341 unit Miami Gardens came to be, which on its own is the best deal I ever underwrote. It's going to be a a phenomenal deal. So now we've grown to 34 people with serious construction people. Now we're ready to execute on this billion dollar development. And, you know, to me, what I'm I'm going to be most proud of is not just to be the owner or the developer, but to be the builder of five high rises in a major city as the builder. So much fun. So you ask, how do I get from you know three to one eighty to seven hundred? We haven't even built a trophy yet. Once we build that, that's where the seven hundred comes from. Once the projects are completed, are you? You mentioned that you some of them you flip. Are you? Gen, what's your strategy? Is it your exit strategy? Is it to hold it and to operate it and to manage it, or do you prefer to flip it and sell it and take the money and run? Lessons learned, right? When you don't have money and you have limited options, and someone comes in and says, "Hey," I'm going to give you $11 for this thing that you spent $3 million on. You got to take it. But I, I also learned from actions. And yeah, that was great. That was a lot of money. But looking back, the better move would have been don't sell, build it. The, that would have been the better move. I didn't have that option at the time, right? Because when you don't have money, you got to just hustle and find a way to do it. Now that I do have money, looking back at those decisions, I now see it's better to hold. And it's more fun to hold and to manage and to be in other people's lives and to create these communities and just, you know, be constantly involved. That's a long way of saying that our goal is to hold all these projects multi-generationally. It's kind of reminds me of Warren Buffett's strategy. It's like when, you know, you never sell. He's in general held on forever. You got to afford to not sell. You're not always in that position. Not everyone can be in that position. Very difficult fortunate position to be in. Yeah, very fortunate. And money compounds pretty quickly when you can do that. And in real estate, you can refinance, you can take money out. Maybe you don't make as much as quickly as as selling, which is why most real estate developers are merchant builders, right? The ones that I know the most active here in South Florida. What that means is you buy the land, you build a project, you sell quickly, you move on, you take the money, you go to the next project and you do it over and over again. But that's not, and you make the most value because, for example, in this Oasis Point project, this project's probably worth 140 million. I'm not going to be able to take the 140 out because in a refinance, no one, no lender's going to give me 140 on 140. They're going to give me a lot less so that they have a collateral there. So you make less money by doing this approach in the short term, but the money grows and the experience, I think, is more fun. And we put our heart and soul into these buildings. Imagine like, giving birth to kids and then giving them away from adoption every time you give birth. I mean, I, it's not something I want to do. I like that example. It's painful to do. Yep. Painful. Listen, we're, we understand from an investor standpoint, listen, our goal is not just, hey, you know, let's build these beautiful buildings and I don't care what the financial aspect is. A big thing for me is if you're an investor, I want to give you more in return 
on a risk-adjusted basis than you've seen anywhere else. I'm not just going to do stuff willy-nilly. There's going to have to be a strategic investment component because my primary obligation and responsibility is to my investors. It's a big deal. Someone's giving you money. That's a big deal. You got to honor that. Luckily, we've done really, really, really well. And our thesis is you can build great projects, create great communities, and still make more money for your investors than they've seen anywhere else. Have you also been involved in some restaurant development and been part owner of some restaurants? I wanted to hear, can you tell us about that experience? I have. That was a a very interesting experience. I've owned and operated half a dozen restaurants, some of them the hottest restaurants, the hottest bars in Miami. We had a a restaurant called Senora Martinez with Michelle Bernstein, who's a uh, James Beard award-winning chef. Unbelievable food. That's actually my favorite restaurant. And then we had another restaurant called Gigi that was really a commercial success. Then a bar, live music venue called Bardo. Everyone in town went there, you know, and for a while I did, but then I couldn't get any work done because I was there all night and I'm like, I can't even go to Bardo anymore. I was involved, but from in the beginning, it was because my business partner at the time, he was more of a hospitality restaurateur. And when the great financial crisis happened, and the initial reason for me coming down here to partner with him and build all these buildings, that didn't materialize because the crisis happened. All of a sudden, he's like, okay, we're, we're done with real estate. We're going to do restaurants because that was his business. And I'm like, restaurants? What do I have to do with restaurants? But I learned the business because there's nowhere else I could go. I, I couldn't make money anywhere else. So all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, let me build the restaurant because I'm, I'm a builder. I did that. And then that's how we got in. And then I said, you know what? Rather than do a standalone restaurant, for the sake of saying, I own a restaurant, how about you bring the restaurant into a building that you build and create that sense of community that draws me and increases the value of real estate, which is important to me. And so now the restaurants that we do are in the context of creating, of placemaking and creating value for the real estate. I love that idea. I interviewed a guy that's pretty popular on real estate Twitter, Eric Weatherholtz, who does developments like that. He'll do really cool patios fountains and have a taco joint and a sushi place and a, all different kinds of really cool space and eateries that people want to be at and then do the development around it. And it, it's you, like you said, it's just placemaking. It's you're creating a place that people are going to want to be. That's right. So now I'm going to take all that experience as a developer, as an owner, as a builder, as a restaurateur, and I'm going to invest and pour it into the district that we're creating in downtown Fort Lauderdale, right? So we're going to have a lot of amazing restaurants, some that we own and and operate. We're going to have luxury branded hotel, luxury branded multifamily, luxury uh, branded condominium, a couple of other multifamily buildings, a yacht valet. So if you're in your fancy condominium, you press a button on your iPhone, you'll have your car waiting for you downstairs. You press another button, you'll have your yacht waiting for you, your 60-foot yacht waiting on the water, catered by our restaurant and a world-renowned F&B operator. That's where all the lessons learned are going to get invested. That's super cool. You got a lot of good stuff in the hopper, it sounds like. So we want to wrap up here. I wanted to, if you just had to give our listeners just one big takeaway, one piece of advice from our talk here today, what would that be? I'd say, find your passion. Find your passion. That's what it's all about. Time's running out, right? And don't give up. Awesome. Asi, thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed talking with you. For our listeners that would like to learn more about you or maybe reach out to you and get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? 
You can reach out by email, Aussie, A-S-I, at symboldlt.com, C-Y-M-B-A-L-D-L-T.com. You could also check us out on our website, Symbol DLT Companies. And it was great to talk to you, to meet with you, Patrick. You're doing a great thing. I mean, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks. I'd love to have you back on and hear some updates sometime. All right, man. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.